Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Van Maren Show at LifeSiteNews.com. My name is Jonathan Van Maren, and today I want to have a discussion with a pro-life leader out of Alberta named Cameron Wilson. Now, those of you who are familiar with pro-life politics in Canada will probably know who Cam is. I've known him now for for more than 10 years. We've done all kinds of pro-life work together. He works for the Wilberforce Project in Alberta, working on bringing the pro-life perspective into politics, working on the campaigns of of pro-life members of provincial parliament, working also uh, on a number of, of federal issues when it intersects with the work that he does at the Wilberforce Project. And just to give you a bit of context, the reason I wanted to have this discussion is the fact that a lot of people right now uh, who are looking at politics are fixating almost exclusively uh, on issues surrounding COVID-19, which I totally understand the pandemic uh, and the accompanying restrictions have affected everybody's lives in, in, in intimate ways. But I do also think it's very important for us not to forget about the fundamental life and family issues and that we need to factor those in when we're thinking about politics politics, when we're evaluating people's track records, and when we're deciding who to vote for. And so just to have a bit of a discussion about Canadian pro-life politics with some specific examples about what's going on in the prairies right now, Cam Wilson joined me to kind of lay out his work to provide some good news, some bad news, and what pro-life voters in this country can do. Here is that conversation. All right, Cam, just to start off and to introduce yourself uh, to the listeners, maybe give a bit of a background of of how you got involved in the pro-life movement, because you were involved at a very young age. Yeah, I was involved in high school, actually. Uh, My brothers were really, really, really involved at their campus club at the University of Calgary. And they, you know, they hosted one of the events that the Canadian Center for Bioethical Reform was putting on with graphic images of abortion. They're hosting that event on campus. And so they gave me the apologetics training, invited me out. And from that point onwards, guys, kind of, you know, (laughs) that was a huge part of my life was working to protect preborn children. Just to give a, a couple of extra details on that, because I, th- I think it's kind of funny. When I first went to the National Campus Life Network, their, their annual symposium at the time for students, I was heading up the Simon Fraser University Students for Life Club. You guys were all part of Campus Pro-Life at the University of Calgary. And you guys were in the middle of this huge corporal. And the reason I remember this is just because at this at this event, at the NCLN Symposium, like half the students there were being charged with trespassing or facing some form of censure from their university. What was going on at the U of C at that time? So at that time, the University of Calgary was twisting itself in knots to try to keep pro-life message, the pro-life message in particular, the, the images of abortion from their campus. And their, their legal justification was that as students on campus, we were trespassing. And when it was pointed out to them that students can't trespass on campus, they said, well, they can't bring the signs on campus, to which our lawyer at the time pointed out that signs can't trespass, inanimate property cannot trespass. But the the university made that argument that we were trespassing on campus. They threatened us with arrest. They threatened us with prosecution. At one point in time, they laid, they got a prosecutor to lay charges, which were later basically who were later dropped by the prosecution. And then ultimately they brought it within their own internal discipline system. They charged us with non-academic misconduct, which our lawyer took to the courts and in the courts we won and it was uh, upheld that we had a right to be on campus. So that was a a big part of the the struggle at the University of Calgary at that time. 
I'll skip ahead a little bit for full disclosure uh, to those listening. And, and those who know, both of us will know this already. But actually, you did an internship with CCBR in 2010, the very first internship they did. We actually lived together the next year in Calgary while I started working for CCBR. And then you went back to school for a while. You studied both history and law. Your degree is in history. And then you ended up working for the Wilberforce Project, taking your pro-life activism into the political sector. So give us a bit of a sense of how you ended up working in the political sector and, and what the Wilberforce Project really is. So the Wilberforce Project, so I ended up in the political side because I realized in Canada, we had a lot of, we had, we had excellent educational work going on, an excellent educational movement. We were able to change minds on abortion like no other movement is able to do. It's actually really quite amazing the work that JC uh, that uh, CCBR and others do on that front. But what we lacked, especially at that time, was good political organization that could take advantage of any change in public opinion and translate that into a change in laws. And there were already laws and majority of Canadians, overwhelming majority of Canadian support, such as sex left of abortion and a host of other issues. Um, that we weren't able to move on. And that was a result of lack of political organization. So I thought, so I realized that that's probably the area that needed the most attention. So that's where I got involved. And the Wilberforce Project is Alberta Pro-Life. And we're focused right now on changing laws in Alberta because we believe that laws save lives. So let's talk a little bit about the the discussion uh, of what's going on in Alberta right now, because Alberta's kind of always been considered one of the most conservative province, uh, provinces in Canada. I'd, probably, I'd argue that that if, by the poll number, Saskatchewan's probably more pro-life than Alberta is. But Alberta has a justified reputation as one of the most conservative provinces. And now you have a premier, Jason Kenney, who managed to unite the right very famously by combining the Wild Rose um, and the Progressive Conservative Party, and then winning the leadership of that party. And and Jason Kenney, for whatever people think of his performance during the pandemic, is is inc- extremely pro-life. He has a perfect pro-life voting record. He stood up to Prime Minister Stephen Harper on the abortion issue and actually voted for uh, former MP Stephen Woodworth's Motion 312, as, as many of the listeners will remember. So as somebody who works in Alberta politics, what is the effect of having a, a small-c conservative government in power done for the pro-life and the pro-family movement? It's given us the chance to get a seat at the table if we organize enough to do it. And so in those moments when the pro-life movement has been highly organized, we've been able to get a a real seat at the table. And it it seems weird to say, but under other leaders, for example, when Brian Jean was the leader of the Wild Rose Party, the party would be going about trying to find their next candidates in all the different ridings. And in the process of people putting their names forward quietly, they would go to them and say, you would be disqualified because you're pro-life. And these conversations happen dozens of times across Alberta to drive pro-lifers out of the political sphere. We didn't really have a seat at the table. Brian Jean wouldn't come out and explicitly say, if you're pro-life, you can't run for the party. He'd do that quietly behind the scenes. And in public, you'd call us, you know, crazies and nut bars. And it's important to remember that because that's where we were just a handful of years ago, really, five, six years ago. That was the state of play in Alberta. Yeah, just because I know we have a, a bunch of listeners from Alberta, I want to pull on that thread a minute because I'm, you and I had some conversations about Brian Jean back during the leadership race. And I would have described myself as far more anti-Brian Jean even than I was 
pro Jason Kenny because when I was researching for a bunch of articles um, to write about Brian Jean's record on social conservative issues and his view of social conservative people, you had sent me a whole bunch of different videos, very public videos of him doing interviews with you know mainstream Canadian broadcasters, basically stating that we need to cut these people out of the party. If I'm the leader, I'm going to get rid of them. And then when this was pointed out in an article with links to actual videos on the CBC, CTV, etc., he, he he tried to say, well, I'm a Baptist. And I, excuse me, I don't really care if you're a Baptist. If you want to cut the social conservatives out of the party, that's not really relevant. So give us an idea of, of, of who Brian Jean is just because he's unfortunately relevant again, because if I'm not mistaken, he's trying to make a bit of a, a political comeback to take advantage of Kenny's stumbles. Brian Jean right now, to those who don't know, is running for the United Conservative Party's nomination up in Fort McMurray, his old seat. And so and he's running essentially as the, the person who's going to push Kenny out. And for because in reality, Kenny is remarkably grassroots. He's actually allowing somebody to run for his party on an explicitly anti Jason Kenny platform, which is crazy. There's no other political leader I've ever heard of who would allow that. But because Kenny trusts the grassroots and is allowing that to happen, you know, he's, he's able to go forward. The The reality on Brian Jean is that he he's a leader who doesn't who doesn't like to make decisions, who doesn't like to be saying things that are unpopular to anybody. And so when he's asked to put forward even common sense pro-life public policy that a majority of Albertans strongly support, because there's that vocal minority, he will never do it. Because being liked is important enough to him that he doesn't want to do anything that would make him unliked. Do we have any sense of what his personal views are on abortion, or do we just know that he'll shank the pro-lifers because that's politically convenient in his mind? I've heard both ways on this, that he'll quietly tell his people that he himself is pro-life, personally. I don't really believe it, given there hasn't been a heck of a lot of evidence of that kind of moral rectitude in his personal life that I can see. So... I would, I, would, I would be surprised if he took his Baptist faith seriously when it comes to believing unpopular things would be my take on it. One of the reasons I wanted to have have this discussion with you is because there's actually been been a number of good news stories out of Alberta lately that really haven't gotten much attention. I believe there was one article in the CBC about one of the stories that you're about to tell us about, about an enormous amount of money being raised for, for the political pro-life movement. Maybe give our listeners some of the encouraging things that you've been part of and that you've seen happening in Alberta in the last six months. Yeah, there are three really great news stories actually coming about out of Alberta. The first one, I think the most significant, is that uh, Pam Davidson won, uh, came in first in the recent province-wide Senate elections. And she came in first by a very significant margin. It wasn't margin of error stuff. Like she, she did very, very, very well. And this is encouraging because she was an unapologetic pro-lifer who crushed a province-wide election. And that just shows very clearly to me that if you want to win in Alberta, this is not a hindrance. If anything, it's a help. Uh, So that was a a huge demonstration of that principle uh, at at play because she was up against two of like the, the party, you know, swamp creature type party individuals. And she crushed both of them out of left field. 
So that was one great news story. Another great news story actually is the, uh, the Pro-Life and Politics Association of Alberta, which is a political party that's founded, that, that exists to advance the pro-life cause in politics. It actually out-fundraised all but the NDP and the UCP over the last couple of quarters. So all other parties, actually, the Alberta Liberals, the Alberta, uh, the Alberta Party, the Wild Rose Independence Party, all of these other parties are easily and wildly out fundraised by the pro-lifers, which speaks to me about how much money a political party could be raising if they were actually to allow that to be a part of their platform especially a conservative political party. So what you're saying is basically that one of the reasons this is significant is it indicates to politicians once again that there is a healthy constituency of people who actually support the pro-life cause and that thus it is not a risk to do something pro-life. Instead, it's a risk to ignore that many people and the resources they bring to the table. I mean, this should be part of any political politicos training in politics. They do this with every other issue, right? Uh, nobody in Alberta, regardless of how capitalist they are, is calling for an end to public health care because they know that they're not going to be able to win on that. And so they talk about reasonable pro-capitalist moves in that direction, right? They talk about incremental movements, and they're able to win elections on those platforms. And all we're saying as the pro-life movement is use the exact same way of thinking about these about the issue in your approach to life issues, because if you if you viewed it from that lens that, yes, the absolutist perspective is unpalatable politically, but the incrementalist perspective gains your gains uh, energy, resources and volunteers to your movement, then you realize just how much of an asset the pro-life movement is. There's voters, there's donors and there's volunteer hours that can come from nowhere else that will vastly expand the reach of the movement and they're available but the parties are just not taking advantage of it right now. Before we get on to the, the last bit of good news, which kind of buttresses the point you're making here, why would you say that these political parties avoid this so much? Because like I have my own theories on this, which I've, which I've written about extensively. The first and most obvious, which is just, is just cowardice uh, on both a lot of the pro-life issues, some of which you've just mentioned, as well as other issues, say, such as the, the issue of gender ideology and things like that. A huge plurality of Canadians actually are far closer to the social conservative position than they are close to say, you know, Dr. Chris Wells and, and, and the radical activists who, who infect our politics. So this is not to say that they would think like you and I think, it's to say that they're far closer to our position than they are in the other direction. Yet the other direction gets all of the attention. The other direction gets the support of the media. Um, the other direction actually packs way more of a punch because they're perceived to have this cultural clout. What is your theory on why that is the case in Canadian politics? In particular, in the conservative movement in Canada, and the actually less the conservative movement and more the conservative political parties, it's an issue of self-identification. So, when you think of the people who want who are born knowing that they're going to go into politics, and at age ten are making their acceptance speech and their throne speech as the next prime minister of Canada, practicing it in their mirror, these are the people who get involved, right? These highly ambitious individuals who, who just push for that and they know that they wanted that since they were very, very young. And they enter their campus clubs and they're often basically the only person in their campus club who's conservative. And so they get pushed all the way through the ranks as quickly as they can because they're that young conservative. 
And the result is these people end up taking all the staffing positions and then they end up running earliest to become for the next round of nominations to become the candidates for the political party. And they're all infected with that same idea. Right. In, in a weird way, there's simultaneous conservative movements on campus, on university campuses in Canada. One is the institutional conservative party movement that has, you know, these the the kids that I'm talking about, those highly ambitious uh, suit and tie wearing at age six kids. And the other is the quiet social conservative movement who get involved in the campus, who get involved in campus pro-life clubs and get involved in their local or in their, their campus church groups or, you know, campus crusade for Christ or whatever it is. Uh, and they're, the, the, the two don't really meet and talk. I don't remember us being quiet on campus at all. <laughs> it's true. We don't necessarily uh, stay quiet on campus as a university club. I'm, I know ours didn't, but uh, but there wasn't a lot. It wasn't until we intentionally started bridging that gap on campus of getting the pro-lifers out to the conservative events to keep the conservative movement pro-life on campus. There was any conversation whatsoever between the two. When, when you're working in politics, one of the things that frustrates me as somebody like I, who, you know, is is both American and Canadian and, and, and of course, interested in American politics, because if you're a political junkie, this is the mother load of crack that everybody goes to. And it's and it's constantly interesting. But one of the things that I'm always very envious of that the American movement has is if you've got a pro-life organization that's lobbying for a law, they have the think tanks, they have the data, they have the infrastructure to provide the politicians everything they want from ready to go legislation to talking points. You know, they have, no matter what kind of data they want, they've got a think tank that specializes in it. Whereas here in Canada, we have a left-leaning media that basically an almost totally excludes any any right-leaning media right we have the national post which isn't as liberal as the rest of them you know but you had barbara k threatening to quit because you know editorial management got nervous about what this liberal feminist person might write about the gender issue next and then you have the fact that we just don't have a conservative infrastructure in this country besides the stuff that's lined up behind individual campaigns so we don't really have any equivalent of the think tanks in the United States that do what the what the think tanks in the U.S. do for the politicians. So if we wanted to do a Hungary-style attack on, on the abortion rate here in Canada, for example, that one of the biggest problems we have is we, we don't have enough data to design it in such a way that would guarantee its effectiveness. This is something that, that we actually need yet. And I don't know if you've ever been to CPAC in the, in the U.S., the Conservative Political Action Conference, but the difference between CPAC and and the Manning Conference, I don't know what they're calling it now because I know the Manning Center is what, the True North Center or something now? Um, but the Manning Center is just a boring trade show with the usual suspects. There's no real discussion of ideas. You've got a handful of politicians, you know, that take their chance to give their stump speech from the stage. Some of them do okay, some of them don't. But like, if I asked you to name, you know, three Canadian conservative intellectuals, you'd have to go 30 years back, right? Or even further, you'd have to, you know, get go back to George Grant and William Gardner and Ted Byfield. And two of those guys are, are are still around and doing some great stuff. But the 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 poverty of the conservative conversation in this country has to lend itself to the fact that. We don't have anything creative. The political arm has nothing creative to say about what we can do about the abortion rate, for example, even if they even if they don't want to, you know, 
pass a law restricting abortion. There's a lot they could do to reduce the abortion rate. But there just seems to be Canadian conservatism seems to be bankrupt in pretty much every way. And I, I don't mean that just morally, although that would apply to the current leader of the Conservative Party of Canada. But I do mean that in terms of a lack of in- infrastructure, a lack of ideas, a total lack of identity. So what's your response to that apocalyptic and depressing analysis? I think that's absolutely correct. The I, I think one of the one of the best ways of putting that was uh, Morton Blackwell in the United States, the great conservative political operative down there, said that political technology determines political success. And by technology, he meant the, how the Greeks would have used that word, knowledge of how to do something, right? And in Canada, we have our conservative movement has very little political technology. We have some people who are all right at campaigns. And they become little celebrities for, you know, the, the, their odd campaign success. But the reality is, as you said, we don't have those, we don't have a lot of good, in particular on the social side, we have almost no think tanks, we have almost no one who's coming up with policy, we have almost nobody who is driving the conversation. And that is a massive area of weakness. That is absolutely why it's really difficult to, to put forward policy. I mean, in my side, I'm you know, I'm a campaigns and lobbying kind of guy. And I, I put forward these, I, I can't really put forward a lot of ideas because I don't have that much data to back it up. And I'm constantly being asked, what's another policy idea you could you could give us? But we don't really have anything, right? And that's interesting because there are a lot of options, right? It's important to note that the, the, the Canada's abortion debate is uniquely polarized because we are extreme compared to basically every other Western nation on earth. The idea that we can't have a discussion about when abortion should be restricted or why our abortion rate is, is so much higher than it is in other countries is fundamentally ridiculous. And it's just evidence of how airtight this whole thing is, right? We're not talking about, you know, passing a law that looks like Mississippi or Alabama. We're talking about Spain, France, the United Kingdom, you know, even the Netherlands, which has an incredibly permissive regime. And yet, for some reason, to, to suggest to suggest an abortion restriction that would be more liberal than 90% of the world and, and or sorry, of Western countries and, and far more liberal than any other English-speaking nation. And suddenly there, there's, you know, dire predictions of, of reversion to the handmaid's tale. And we're not able to get our message across that that's not the case. I, I've, been, I've been told by a bunch of politicians that I trust that the, you know, that I trust on the issues, that abortion is the quote unquote third rail Canadian politics, which I say you can use, the, you can use that to your advantage as a politician as well. Right. If you know something's going to suck all the oxygen out of the room, right, know that abortion is going to hurt you less to have everybody talking about it than healthcare, for example. How did it turn into the third rail? Because so if you look, if you look at how this this went down, right, and I think mo- most of the Canadian listeners will have a decent idea, you know, the broad sketches of how we got to where we where we did, right? Decriminalized by the first Trudeau in 1969, Canadian Supreme Court overthrows the 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 still restrictive abortion regime in 1988 in the R.V. Morgenthaler case, gives Parliament essentially a mandate to redraft and then re-legislate on abortion. The court tries 
tries that once under Mulroney, and that's defeated. And then since then, it's gone from an issue where, you know, suggesting suggesting that people aren't having it, like enough abortions is normal, right? When you had during the election campaign, you've got Justin Trudeau giving hundreds of thousands of dollars to a New Brunswick university for the specific purpose of figuring out how to increase abortion access rather than asking why so many women in Canada are having abortions they don't want to have as per a 2018 report by Joyce Arthur of the Abortion Rights Coalition of Canada, who's never met a feticide she didn't like, right? This is this is what the discussion looks like. And there's not a peep from the other side, like our friend, our friend Aaron O'Toole, right? I'd rather vote for a bag of flour, but he, he like, he won't stand up when crisis pregnancy centers are attacked. Like w- one of, one of the reasons that we keep losing things politically is because the liberals desperately want to use abortion, not to fear monger the left, like people think as much as they do, they want to split the right. They want to prove to everybody, once again, that a leader like Aaron O'Toole is a coward. He won't even fight for crisis pregnancy centers. He won't even fight for resources for women who needs them. And so uh, Trudeau puts forward this policy. O'Toole won't fight. The left gets their policy. Joyce Arthur gets her policy. And conservatives are increasingly disillusioned with O'Toole, which guarantees that Trudeau will win. People often think these policies are directed at stoking the liberal base. But I think that these policies are far more directed to splitting our own base and revealing the spinelessness of the current leadership. What's your take on that? One of the wisest things that I've ever heard uh, that was ever given to me by my political my political mentor was when the disadvantages of a political position are forced upon you, you might as well avail yourself of the advantages of that position. Because as he says, uh, issues don't sink campaigns. Issues management sinks campaigns, right? How you talk about an issue matters far more than what the substance of the issue is. Because most Canadians are not ideological voters. They're not left or right. They're not, they don't think of themselves in these terms. They hear something and they say, that sounds good, right? That sounds right. That speaks to me, right? And, and that's how, they, how they'll, they'll build their perspective of a voter, of a leader or a party and cast their vote. And so what matters isn't whether or not you're pro-life or pro-choice, really, what matters is what goes along with it. And that's where Leslie Lewis has been so brilliant because she has been steadfast in defending, in defending life as a politician. But what she's been doing it brilliantly because she's been doing it in a way that's very compassionate and very approachable. Nobody sees her as judging anybody. In fact, the way she defends it, she's taking upon herself the mantle of being compassionate. Right. She's defending the, the crisis pregnancy centers and defending the women who are in crisis that they are helping. And she's the defender of those women. And so it's not a, a pro-life, pro-choice debate. It's do you defend what well, do you support women in crisis or do you not support women in crisis? And that's a very good look for a conservative leader. And so with this issue, we know that Justin Trudeau and any left-wing leader across the country is going to push social issues during their campaign because they need to. They need to drive up their own turnout and they need to, you know, cause a, a, a split in the conservative base. As you said, they need to do this. So we know that no matter how much ground you surrender to them, they will always find another wedge because they have to find another wedge. So if the disadvantages of position have been forced upon you like this you might as well avail yourself of the advantages of that position. Which is forcing them to defend the extremity of their position, which we never force them to defend, right? Justin Trudeau right now is going after crisis pregnancy centers, 
which, you know, like, so my wife just collected a whole bunch of car seats for a crisis pregnancy center in Toronto. Why? Because what the center does is it provides diapers and car seats and resources to women who need them, right? And what what is what does Aaron O'Toole and almost all the conservatives do, besides Leslie Lewis, um, whom you just mentioned, is they pretty much... They pretty much let, uh, let let O'Toole get away, like let Trudeau get away with it. Sorry, right? Well, besides, you know, Arnold Vierson, long may he uh, he be an MP. You know, Leslie Lewis and, and a few others. Like I, I think I just named the only two p- politicians I'd actually give money to. To be honest, there's 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 basically no pushback when he's going after something that would appall people if it was framed properly. But he's too busy trying to figure out how to punch his way out of a pet paper bag when he gets asked by the media. You know, what he thinks about abortion because he hasn't figured out what he thinks yet. He needs the polls to tell him or whatever. And looking to the polls, when you're when the crisis that all the polls are telling you about your own perception is that you're not a leader and you look to the polls to decide how to get out of that, you're kind of answering the question about why people don't see you as a leader. Who was it? Who was it that, that said that great line? You might remember, right? There go my people and I must follow them for I'm their leader. Gandhi and Stephen Harper. <laughs> okay, did not did not remember that Gandhi said that. <laughs> but, but yeah, that was uh, originally a Gandhi quote. And, and that's, I mean, in some leaders, that's a great thing. When you have a leader who naturally wants to lead, but sees that his people are insistent on going another direction. And, you know, as a servant leader and lets, you know, decides that he'll, he'll go that way when he needs to. But, so, I mean... When it's on every single issue, you're waiting to see which way the wind's blowing. Almost always, as, as I was also told by the same mentor, nothing moves in politics except if it's been pushed. So if the wind's blowing some direction, somebody's already pushed it, and it's almost always Trudeau. So if the wind's blowing because Trudeau has pushed it, and rather than push back and get the wind going the other direction, you know, get everything moving the other direction, he just allows himself to be blown along. That's exactly true, and and yet I wanna I wanna be encouraging um, uh, to people, and so the last thing on your list I, I saved the best for last because I, I did think this was was the most encouraging. The third development in Albertan politics that proves that pro life political grassroots action is not in fact a waste of time. Maybe share that with the listeners. There was a recent AGM for the United Conservative Party here in Alberta, and it was an interesting AGM because it basically broke down into like. Pro-Jason Kenney or anti-Jason Kenney really is where it came down to. A lot, like Jason Kenney was very well organized, as he always is politically. And so he brought out a lot of the staffers and a lot of those people made sure that they could get down to the AGM. And uh, the anti-Jason Kenney crowd, mostly led by Brian Jean surrogates, Brian Jean himself had the gall to show up to the AGM, um, was extremely disorganized because, once again, that's who Brian Jean is. And what didn't get bring out many people. So you had about, you know, three quarters or so of the people there were Jason Kenney loyalists. And I was a bit worried about this because this is going to tend to be more of that concentration of people who were anti, who would tend to vote against common sense pro-life policy. They're allergic to it because they're very involved, that unique group of creatures who are very involved in politics and spend all their time thinking about it and have decided often that pro-life positions are impossible to win with. And they've concentrated themselves in these positions of power. But even in this hostile AGM, when conscience rights was put to the floor, a policy proposal was made to have the United Conservative Party officially adopt conscience rights for healthcare providers as part of their policy book. 
two thirds almost of delegates voted in favor of conscience rights and to add that to the policy book. So now it is the official policy of the United Conservative Party to support conscience rights for healthcare providers on a broad range of issues, whether it's pro-life and youth, uh, whether it's abortion and euthanasia, but also uh, things like uh, uh, sex change surgeries and the whole gamut of things. And this was approved by almost two thirds majority in a, in a tough floor fight with debate on both sides that, that went on. That's awesome because it's been it has been controversial and it's always it's always kind of insane to me that conscience rights is 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 actually controversial. Like who wants a doctor that doesn't follow his or her conscience? But the UCP actually killed conscience rights early on when Dan Williams put forward a a piece of legislation. Is this going to be a corrective to that in your view? I think it will be a bit of a corrective. Now, I don't anticipate. You know, Jason Kenney dropping a bill that will be as all-encompassing as as the policy itself states. I, I anticipate there's going to be a bit of walk back in terms of how far they're willing to go with government or private members' legislation. And I don't even know if this this round in the legislature until the next election whether or not it'll be put forward. But I do know that the Having this in place means that the next time this issue comes forward, any MLA from the United Conservative Party side who speaks out against conscience rights is now speaking out against the will of the grassroots of the party. And that can be used to lambast them constantly. That can be used at their nominations, at their AGMs, at all of their the moments that they show up. To hurt them, it's going to be a lot more cautious talking about it because they'd have, in order to do so, they have to repudiate the will of the grassroots. So that's the first thing. The second thing is it gives cover to a pro-life MLA to reintroduce this, saying this is what our grassroots want. And finally, it sends that it's a really good thermometer that even in a AGM that is conceivably most hostile to our values. Still, almost two thirds of the base at such an AGM wanted this, let alone what the average conservative across the province wants. So, I think it's a really, really good temperature and a really, really uh, temperature gauge and a really good gut check for where the conservative movement is right now and the kinds of things the conservative movement wants to see from its leaders. And I think that message will probably sink in. A final question I wanted to ask, because this is something I'm concerned about, is is what we've actually seen with the COVID-19 pandemic is that because it's new, uh, because a lot of people weren't sure how to respond, there's all sorts of complicating factors as to why the different premiers uh, acted the way that they did. And I'm not really interested in getting to all of those details because it's separate from the, the pro-life and pro-family discussion I'm interested in having, but it does intersect in a way that concerns me because in a lot of these provinces where the premiers are facing a lot of criticism from from their own base for how they've operated some of it justified I'm sure and some of it not it would be like Kenny Ford in Saskatchewan and you name it what I'm concerned about is so for example in a situation like Alberta where you don't have to like Jason Kenney. In fact, you can actively hate his guts and you can play, you know, um, you can play darts with his face on a dartboard as far as I care. But you also have to recognize that taking him down, like voting against him, voting for a third party, or for example, not voting entirely, which is, I suspect, where a lot of SoCon voters are at at the moment, 
You're basically ensuring that Rachel Notley will be able to resume her attack on Christian schools that she was engaged in prior to the last provincial election. She would have shut down 22 Christian schools if Jason Kenney hadn't gotten elected, made the education secretary a lifelong pro-life activist who then promptly stopped the NDP's attack on, on Christian schools. And instead... Like politics is about pragmatism for me. So if if I'm being asked to vote for two like morally repugnant people, that's a lot more difficult. But I don't think anybody can accuse Jason Kenney, for example, of, of suddenly not being pro-life, of not being pro-family just because they disagree with his, his, his pandemic record. And I'm kind of concerned that we're going to end up with the woman who would have locked down earlier, harder and longer and will directly attack religious liberty and the right to, to freedom and education for Christians if she is reelected. And so I'm I'm worried that, that that the COVID pandemic is going to create a backlash that is going to make things much, much more difficult for Christian communities in Canada in the long term. What are your thoughts on that? I think you're absolutely you absolutely hit the nail on the head. My answer whenever people ask me what to do about Jason Kenney is who would you replace him with? Right. And typically they stumble around. Right. Because there is no one who is competent for the role Right. There's, there's that lack of people who are competent for that role who would be able to do it and who would have our values. Brian Jean, are you kidding me? Brian Jean would take power and immediately wet himself because he has to make decisions and he doesn't want to make decisions. Right. Like he would be a catastrophe as premier, an absolute catastrophe as premier because he doesn't have the stuff. He just doesn't have the stuff. He has never won a province wide election with more than 5000 votes. Like with more than had more than five thousand votes cast. The only time he won a province-wide election was when he was running for the leadership of the Wild Rose Party at the Nadir of the Wild Rose Party, and about five thousand votes were cast. And a lot of, I'll, I'll just put it to you this way: the, his campaign manager in that election was the same, very same campaign manager for the Kamikaze campaign, who was, you know, basically forced to leave the country for a bit because the RCMP were investigating him. So there's a lot of funny stuff that goes on in those campaigns, and. Brian Jean, he has never won a province-wide election since. In fact, he's been beaten multiple times. He's been beaten to the extent that when the people needed a uh, a different worldview to the PCs, not a different worldview, but a different option, they passed over the Wild Rose and Brian Jean and went to the NDP and Rachel Notley, who was polling at like 6-7% before then, and she rose up and beat the, the PCs. That's how desperate they were. They didn't see him as a vote, as a leader, and I don't think he'd win a general election. And I would once again pass along to, to Rachel Notley, not to mention all the problems of a Brian Jean leadership for us. Danielle Smith, she opposes conscience rights. She opposed it on the floor of the convention. Right. She I mean, Danielle Smith has never been our friend. She voted in favor of funding sex selective, sorry, sex change surgeries in Alberta, using public money for that, despite claiming to be a libertarian. Right. When she was in the wild roads, this is this is this is that person. If you can't defend conscience rights because you've intentionally hired staff who will never consider social conservative issues and you have nobody to the right of you to talk to on these issues, you're never going to be able to lead the province. And it will be a disaster if she wins. The names aren't, you know, the names of the that the people who hate the Jason Kenney right now are putting forward are not options. They're just non-starters. And as you said, Jason Kenney hasn't actually been bad for the pro-life movement. 
Jason Kenney hasn't put forward bills that'll end abortion or that'll, that'll do those those types of things. But he's allowed people like Dan Williams to come up through the ranks and to put forward a bill. I mean, Dan Williams was his former personal assistant, right? Dan Williams is Jason Kenney Stafford, who goes to uh, Fort who goes to uh, Peace River and wins. Another former uh, Kenny staffer was Joseph Scow, who was one of two votes in favor of conscience rights on the uh, the private members uh, committee. He's the Mormon fellow near near Lethbridge. Yes. Yeah, yeah, and he's got he's been rock solid for us the whole time. He also spoke on the floor of the convention in defense of conscience rights in in the face of all the opposition. Uh, there's Michaela Frey, A medicine hat, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Young social conservative. I mean, she she went to the she went to the microphone at convention to defend conscience rights with an I vote pro life pin. Right? These are the people who Jason Kenney didn't just uh, allow to run for his party, but actively encouraged and was very happy to see them run for his party. And you wouldn't have any of them. They would have all been disqualified uh, if Brian Jean or somebody else had been leader. And these are the kinds of things that allow us to build that, that the movement that we need, that to hire the staffers to nominate the MLAs, to gain the experience in the political technology that gives us a chance to get these things done in the future. Because as you said before, and it seems like a depressing thing, Right. When we talk about the lack of political infrastructure in Canada for the social conservative movement. But to me, that's actually a great sign of hope because we know why we don't win. We know what we need to do to win. And there is actually nothing stopping us from doing it. Right. Our losses aren't inevitable. We just have to overcome our, our, our structural weaknesses. And there's nothing stopping us from it. That's an immense sign of hope for me. We just need to build the, the, the structure. And Leaders like Jason Kenney and other uh, conservatives who might have come out on the wrong side to many people's perspectives on the co- on COVID issues have been allowing us to build that infrastructure and have been giving us the free hand to build that infrastructure. And that's that's an amazing gift to the movement that we've been taking great advantage of. And we should support them as they as they as they move forward because of that. You never tear down a fence until you know until you know why it was put up there. You never get rid of a leader until you have a good idea of who's going to replace the leader, as much as you might dislike. And that and that applies to a whole bunch of situations right across the country. I'll close with this. How can can listeners, especially those in Alberta, reach out and get in touch with you and the Wilberforce Project if they're interested in your work? Go to the WilberforceProject.ca and sign our I Vote Pro-Life pledge. It's the single most important thing they can do because if we don't know who you are and how to contact you, we can't speak for you when we talk with politicians and we can't get in contact with you when there's something that needs to be done on the political side. Cam, thanks so much for taking the time to have this discussion. Thank you so much for having me, John. Ladies and gentlemen, that was my conversation with Cameron Wilson of the Wilberforce Project. Thank you so much for joining us this week. If you want to check out past shows or subscribe to listen to future shows, please go to lifesightnews.com, click on the podcast tab. We're on all the major platforms where you get your content. And so we really do appreciate your time and we do hope you'll choose to subscribe. Thanks so much. Have a great week.